You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can make the show just a little bit better, shoot me an email from hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To listen to my catalog of past episodes and hear new ones every week, look for Hidden History on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like what I do, and by the time you get to the end of this episode, you think I deserve it, I'd appreciate it if you subscribed to the show on your preferred platform. It really helps me grow my audience. If you really want, you can also follow me on Twitter, at LSA2G. So, without further ado, on to the show. So, the other week, I did an episode kind of talking about the nature of propaganda through the frame of the 1966 song, Ballad of the Green Berets. And I kind of wanted to continue with that into this week, but not necessarily about militaristic propaganda. Well, maybe. Kinda. I suppose it's complicated. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the evolution in the politics of country music, the idea of an American heartland, and the seemingly inextricable relationship between country music and political conservatism. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 59, Song of the South. So, right off the bat, I'm gonna kind of betray the title of this episode inasmuch as I'm not gonna stick exclusively to the South, but then again, I'm gonna start out there. The history of modern country music can largely be traced back to the Civil War, with a great number of songs developing and spreading throughout the Union and Confederate armies. As a result, you get popularized songs like The Yellow Rose of Texas and Dixie, ironically, neither of which were seemingly actually written in the South. Yellow Rose first appeared in an 1853 Philadelphia songbook called Christie's Plantation Melodies No. 2, and Dixie is largely credited to the Ohio-born minstrel performer Daniel Decatur Emmett. But the origin of these songs isn't necessarily important. What matters is that, right off the bat, what would soon become a country music emerges from the American folk tradition as a political force. And if you know anything about folk music, that shouldn't really be the most surprising thing in the world, given that folk itself is an extremely political genre. So to get at kind of the first instance of this change, I want to talk briefly about some of the sociology behind folk, also known as American vernacular music. So if we're talking about any cultural product, then something that becomes relevant in its historical analysis is what's called the quote, aesthetic identity, or the aesthetic signifier that's commonly used to depict the consumers of that product. Essentially, the aesthetic identity is kind of like a stereotype. It exists to demarcate boundaries between groups. The aesthetic identity of folk music is whiteness. William G. Roy wrote the following passage on the subject in his paper, Aesthetic Identity, Race, and American Folk Music. Folk music, however, complicates the connection between group identity and group culture. As the music of a people, or a folk, it conforms to the principle of homology. But 
In fact, folk music is typically the appropriation by one group, usually a dominant group, of someone else's music, fortifying social boundaries by breaking the principle of homology. No one calls themselves the folk. The folk are always some other. So the question becomes, who creates the genre of folk music? For what purpose? And who embraces it as our music? Whose aesthetic identity is defined by folk music and what social boundaries are constituted? Roy goes on to deconstruct our historical notion of folk music, saying that the idea of creating a folk music genre was largely invented by intellectual forces in the 1930s and 40s, and the label was retroactively applied to past music. This intellectual desire to catalog and categorize what is now known as folk music is largely derived from exactly what Roy says, which is the desire of a dominant group to appropriate the culture of the other as their own. It also comes from a deep-seated veneration of the past as a more pure representation of humanity. For example, Roy writes that the desire to preserve the quote, folk elements of British culture largely came from upper-class Englishmen believing that the peasantry was being corrupted by industrialization, and so representations of pre-industrial peasant life needed to be preserved and actively practiced as they represented a better time before such ancient cultures had been sullied by modernity. But almost immediately as folklorists began practicing in the American colonies and the following United States, they create an incomplete picture of American vernacular music by ignoring the influences that African musical tradition had on the development of a national musical culture. As a result, the evolution of early American folk music is specifically the development of white music. Now, as country develops out of American vernacular around the time of the Civil War, that racial imbalance stays in the genre and actually becomes significantly stronger. Now, before I go on and talk about that, I want to kind of cram this section in here because I didn't know where else to put it in the episode, and I just thought it was super interesting and speaks to the complexity of music. So I decided that I'm just going to do it right now. One of the Civil War era country songs is the marching tune John Brown's Body, which I played at the end of episode 55. Now, John Brown's Body was actually written before Battle Hymn of the Republic, which shares the same tune. Now, Battle Hymn sounds a little bit like this. Right, so obviously very slow, very solemn, and much less spirited than the relatively upbeat John Brown's body. The cool thing is, John Brown's body comes from what's called the Camp Meeting Movement, which was a type of religious service popular in 18th century America. Now, the Camp Meeting Movement influences gospel music, which influences ragtime, which influences jazz, which influences Dixieland, which gives us something like this. Now, that song is actually a cover of an early piece called Georgia Camp Meeting. So this... And this... 
have a close common ancestor. So that's the end of that segment. Hopefully it gave you a little bit of insight into how genres evolve and mesh with each other over time. <clears throat> All right, so back to it. The racial homogeneity of country music is something that was actively enforced by the companies actually recording the music. This demarcation was so strong that when the technology came about, well, which you can learn about in episode seven, uh, essentially, when records were created, things produced by black artists weren't referred to by the genre of music they performed, but rather were divided into an entirely different subdivision of product called race records, which was its own special little genre consisting of anything produced by a black artist. So country music at this point is defined by its aesthetic identity of whiteness, and just like early American folklorists, early country musicians really do not acknowledge the contributions made to country music by non-white people. Really, that's something that's still not commonly acknowledged to this day. In this way, the country genre tries to dance around what William Roy said about the appropriative nature of folk music by instead choosing to kind of wholesale deny that anyone who wasn't white had anything to do with the genre's development. This is actually surprisingly contrastable against the racial history of folk music, as it evolved into a type of music that was meant for all people. As a result, folk was actually an incredibly diverse genre, which is one of the things that caused the American left to recognize its value as a political platform in the 1920s and 30s. Now, cultural historians like Charles Wolfe and James Akinson often consider 1923 to be the first year that country music really lands on the commercial scene. And largely, there isn't a whole lot of new original music being produced specifically for country singers, so they've got to rely on old music, like, for example, songs from the Civil War. And so our earliest commercial country has kind of a nationalist spin to it. Now, of course, Sometimes it's being nationalist for the guys who lost and also wanted to own people, but like I said in the beginning of this episode, the side that it's fighting for doesn't really matter so much as the fact that it's fighting for a side at all. Because of early countries' perpetuation of Civil War era music, the genre maintains that really strong politicality that it gained during its kind of incubating period 60 years before. During the following 10 years, which is known as the hillbilly period of country music, through the use of race records, in the words of J. Lester Fetter in his paper Song of the South, Country Music, Race, Religion, and Politics of Culture, the, quote, industry's decision to pursue a segregated marketing strategy did not simply replicate Southern Jim Crow, but rather created a new kind of cultural sphere for Southern whites, separated from their black neighbors in a way unknown before mass mediation. So already, not only can we see the politics of country music, but we can also see, through its tacit support of Jim Crow policies, the link between social conservatism and the country genre. Now, it's time to change gears a little bit. A few weeks ago, a disingenuous corporate stooge 
former bread price fixer and scarily ambitious empty suit Pete Buttigieg made a really big brain tweet. He said, In the face of unprecedented challenges, we need a president whose vision was shaped by the American heartland rather than the ineffective Washington politics we've come to know and expect. In the face of such meaningless platitudes, it's very much worth examining what exactly the heartland is, and if it even exists. Spoiler, the idea of the American heartland is entirely fabricated. It doesn't actually exist, and it's never existed. And that's because the heartland isn't actually a concrete geographic place. It's a collective dream that somewhere out there in this big nation, there are people who are essentially someone's version of perfect Americans. People who believe in traditional values of God and family, who are patriotic and work good, honest jobs, maybe in a factory, if you want to learn about that from last episode. The idea of someone from the heartland is, in reality, a no-true-Scotsman-esque appeal to purity, which has the effect of subverting the perceived value of left beliefs by elevating the conservative elements of the Midwest, holding them up as the American ideal. Am I saying that Pete Buttigieg is a conservative? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, and you shouldn't vote for him. Now, I actually want to loop that back around to a political idea that's very closely linked to the idea of the heartland American, and that's the Nixonian concept of the silent majority. Now, for my listeners who aren't familiar with American history, the silent majority was Nixon's theory that the majority of Americans supported his policies. They just weren't super vocal about it. So, to lay it out for you, Country music has a link to the Midwest through the role social conservatism plays in the idea of the Heartland American. The Heartland American has a link to the silent majority through its broad encompassing of American conservatism. So wouldn't that mean, through the commutative property or whatever, that country music has a link to the silent majority? Well, if you thought that, then you'd be absolutely correct. Because it turns out that Richard Nixon thought so too. And to illustrate that, I've got to talk about one of my absolute least favorite country songs of all time, which is Merle Haggard's Oki from Muskogee. So those of you that are familiar with the song undoubtedly know what I'm talking about when I say that Oki from Muskogee is the embodiment of the Heartland American. It's like a musical Norman Rockwell picture. And in the 60s and 70s, it was one of the rallying points of the anti-counterculture movement. Throughout the song, Merle Haggard goes through this list of things that the good Americans in Muskogee don't do. They don't smoke weed, they don't burn their draft cards, they don't let their hair grow out, they don't, quote, make a party out of loving. <laughs> you know, the, the list goes on. I'm not going to read you all the lyrics on air. What's important to take out of this is that the message of the song seems to be criticizing cultural change and supporting the status quo, by extension, supporting the American government. That claim in particular is supported by the fact that Haggard originally wrote Oki from Muskogee in response to, among other things, 
protests over the Vietnam War. He would actually go on to somewhat regret writing the song, saying in a 1981 interview with Quarter Notes magazine that, quote, Ogie made me appear to be a person who was a lot more narrow-minded, possibly, than I really am. The impact of the song on the landscape of 70s cultural politics was actually pretty significant. After a live performance in 1969, the Atlantic Monthly wrote of the crowd's reaction to Ogie, quote, Suddenly, they are on their feet, berserk, waving flags and stomping and whistling and cheering, and for those brief moments... The majority isn't silent anymore. There it is. Just like American leftists with the folk music of the 1930s, Richard Nixon saw that there was a great opportunity to be had in leveraging the popularity of Haggard's song for political gain. And so, in March 1973, Merle Haggard sings Okie from Muskogee in a private concert for Richard Nixon. The next year, Nixon went down to Nashville as a guest on the country music review Grand Ole Opry. He led the crowd in singing and playing God Bless America on an upright piano and gave a speech about the uniquely American values of country music, saying, quote, Country music is American. It isn't something that we learned from some other nation. It isn't something that we inherited. It's as native as anything American we could find. He said that country music came from, quote, the heart of America, because this is the heart of America, out here in middle America. I mean, I think, you know, maybe he says America a little bit too much in that last quote, but you get the message. So I guess to tie it all together, what's exactly the lesson that we can take out all of this? Is it that we can't listen to country music anymore? No, that'd be pretty stupid of me to say. Is it that all country songs have bad politics? No, uh, some do, absolutely, but I like to think that this show has at least some degree of nuance. I suppose the real message from this episode is that country music is, and always has been, an incredibly politically charged genre, and that, like all other media, when we consume it, we should be very aware of what it's trying to tell us. To finish out this episode, I want to play you <laughs> Okie from Muskogee. Um, I hate it, so I'm not going to listen. Uh, but this is my show, so I can make you do it. Uh, but, but, but give it a listen, and, and pick it apart a little bit. Think about it for a while, and then get back to me about how that song makes you feel. My line is always open. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take our trips on LSD. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street. Cause we like living right and being free We don't make a party out of loving But we like holding hands and pitching woo 
We don't let our hair grow long and shaggy Like the hippies out in San Francisco do And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee A place where even squares can have a ball We still wave old glory down at the courthouse And white lightning still the biggest thrill of all Leather boots are still in style for manly footwear Beads and Roman sandals won't be seen Football's still the roughest thing on campus And the kids here still respect the college dean And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee A place where even squares can have a ball We still wave old glory down at the courthouse White lightning still the biggest thrill of all And white lightning still the biggest thrill of all 